Hi, everybody, and welcome to Chapter 2 of our look at the prodigal God. And in this chapter, we're going to look at uh, some questions and um, hopefully have some answers for you. I'm Marvin Bland. And I'm Janice Casey. Okay. Hey, Janice, I hope you're doing well. So in Chapter 2, Keller says that uh, Jesus' story might as well be named the parable of the two lost sons. It's a drama in two acts. Act one is entitled The Lost Younger Brother, and Act two is entitled The Lost Elder Brother. So let's kind of look at these um, particular acts as we have them here. And, um, And scene one of Act one, the younger brother makes a shocking request. And that shocking request is this. He tells his father that I want to give you, I want you to give me all of the inheritance, all of the estate that is due to me. So why is this question so shocking? Well, you know, the, the, the listeners, um, when Jesus is saying this parable, would have been amazed by such a request because of a couple of reasons. One, when do you get your inheritance? Well, you get it when that person dies. And now this younger son is asking this outlandish thing of giving the inheritance. Um, and also, this is the youngest son. And so uh, the way it worked in those times is a father had two heirs the oldest would have gotten two-thirds of the estate, and the youngest would have received one-third. Um, and again, as I said, this division would have occurred only when the father died. So for the youngest son to ask for his inheritance now, it's really a sign of deep disrespect. And to ask for it while the father is still living, you can think about it. it it's just saying that, you know what? I wish that the father was already dead. Well, so with that being such a, a, a fierce act of disrespect, how did the father respond? And, and again, this was the amazing thing for people listening to the parable of Jesus because what Jesus said was, well, the, the father said, okay, I'm going to do it. And, uh, and, and, again, this is an act of disrespect to, to the father because uh, um, in a traditional Middle Eastern society, heck, in, in most societies, if, if, if I were to ask my dad, hey, daddy, give me what's due for me now, and he said, boy, get out of here. Um, so he not only has to now take the, uh, the, the property, but now he's got to, do something with it. And, and you know, uh, what did the father have to do to do this? And so what the father had to do is this. Um, he didn't have, like, 401Ks or money laying around in the bank or anything like that. Most of the father's property was his wealth. That's where his money was tied up in. And this was true for most people in, in these agrarian societies. You really didn't need money, per se. You needed the property so you could grow crops that could get you some money. 
And then also you could also use that crop for livestock and other things as well, uh, as well, but property. And so what the father had to do to get the cash money that the younger son wanted to do was he had to sell a great deal of his land. And not only cut off money for right now, but money for generations to come because he sold his land. And so this was, you know, again, a really shocking and startling thing that he did. Um, I'd like to insert, though, and I've heard this before, that sometimes we have a hard time with how we perceive God as a father because of our own fathers. And my father, first of all, my father had a big name. His name was King Edward Rhodes Sr. And he lived up to his name. And my father got us together one day. Um, there were five of us. And he said, he said, look, I've been thinking about this. I've been praying about it. And I know that most times uh, children get what is due to their do from their parents when the parents die. But then sometimes they need it before then. So all of you are adults. What I'm going to do is I'm going to have all of my property surveyed and I'm going to uh, get it deeded to each one of you. And he did that. And the property that I'm living on today that I was able to, to um my husband and I were able to build a house on in our early 20s was because my father gave us our inheritance way before he was elderly. And it was a blessing. So I never have had a problem seeing this story in that light. Now, I've had a problem with some of the other parts of the um of the parable, but the fact that the father gave the son what he asked for, that wasn't a question in my mind. Yeah, I can get, yeah, I get that, absolutely. But also, I guess you can see how it could be and is a question in the minds of the people hearing the parable at the time it was told. And then also maybe for some of us that, uh, uh, or we didn't even think about it in, in these terms, that how difficult it, it was for the father to do that, which kind of goes into this whole bit in question four that we pose about the definition of being reckless um, or, or, or being a prodigal, as I say. It's being reckless, extravagant, having spent everything. And so the result of the father being prodigal to his son meant a couple of things. Um, the father had to tear his life apart for his son, um, meaning his land, his property, and all those sorts of things. And the difference, I believe, in what you saw your father did, which I think is absolutely correct and right, and what happened here was your father came to that conclusion himself and presented it to you guys. This happened yes. well. The son just said, this is what I want to do. So, right. again, the father here is prodigal. As, again, if we're defining prodigal as being extravagant, having spent everything. Uh, and so the result of that is the father tore up his life for his son. 
the father loses some honor in the community because what? You're selling your land for your son, and he's going to go off? And then the father's love for his son, uh, this is the youngest son, is being in some quarters rejected because he's not waiting his turn. He's not doing the providential thing. He wants it, and he wants it now. And by wanting it now, his inheritance now, he's almost wishing that his father was dead. Right. So what about you? What, what are some ways that God has been prodigal to you, has given you above and beyond? Um, I, I think the maintenance of my health. Um, I know that uh, about four or five years ago now, uh, it seems like yesterday I was in the hospital for 13, 14 days, and uh, they could not find what was wrong with me. And, um, and uh, I was told that uh, if that intervention didn't happen, I probably would have died. And so the Lord has been radical and providential and, and, and uh, has been uh, uh, prodigal in terms of my health. Uh, the Lord has protected me from danger. Uh, I was proud to serve in the military, but uh, in the military you get into some dangerous situations, war or no war, and God has protected me through that. And then I, I think the, the last thing, uh, Janice, is that uh, in this present age, God has given me everything I need to be an effective teacher of the gospel. Uh, the fact that uh, we can record our, our conversation right now and we can print the guide that goes with this with the questions that we put, we put together, uh, the multimedia uses that we can do to teach the gospel. I'm just, I'm just so uh, pleased that God has been a prodigal with me in terms of, of giving me everything I need to to make this ministry uh, happen. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So let's uh, let's move on to scene two of Act One um, with the younger brother. He's gotten the inheritance. He's moved away, and then talk to us about what happened. Well, so yeah, he moves away. And uh, I kind of like to say, you know, the younger brother, I call him Harry, and Harry goes and goes to Las Vegas. And Harry goes to Las Vegas, and when he gets there, he is a high roller, and everybody knows it. And he's got all the women. He's got all everything he, he wants and desires, and he, and he participates in everything. And before he knows it, guess what? He's broke. And he's reduced to living and working on a pig farm. And pigs are thought to be really lowly animals. And while he was there, and he was hungry, he couldn't get anything to eat. Uh, he, he was okay eating the, the, the feed that, uh, would get, that was given to the pig. And, and then a, a revelation comes to him that, you know, my father has what are called hired men. And and hired men, uh, and, and this answers another question that, we, that we're posing in the guide, hired men uh, are servants who work on the estate 
and, and I'm sorry, the servants, I should say, who work on the estate and live there. So, so the father has some servants. But hired men uh, are kind of tradesmen and craftsmen who live in the local villages and earn a wage. So he, he thinks that, you know what, I need to become one of my father's hired men. So I'm going to go back, and I'm going to ask my father to let me become a hired man. Um, and what I will do as a hired man, and I've got a first apprentice with someone because I don't have a trade that I have. So I'm going to go apprentice with someone, become a hired man, make a wage, and then I'm going to give that wage back to my father to, for restitution of what I've done. Uh, and, and that's the kind of the plan that the, uh, that the son comes up with, uh, the younger son comes up with, uh, to spark his return home. Okay. So instead of the son actually becoming a, a younger son, he would be an employee of the father. And um, yeah, he would precisely. make a wage, and he would still not have to live with the father. He could live in the village. Right, but, but he's doing that because he, since his one, he's rejected his father, and he knows his father's not going to take him back, that his father is, uh, is probably upset with him because, A, he took the, all the, the inheritance before uh, time, and then, B, uh, squandered it all. And now, C, he's crawling back to father and says, well, please take me back. And, but he's, he's saying, no, that's not going to work. That is not going to work. So the best plan I can think of is let me become this hired man. I am never going to be part of the family again, but I am going to pay restitution. I am going to pay back the money. And perhaps if that occurs, after restitution is made, my father would take me back. But he understands that none of that is guaranteed. And that's why he's coming back to ask to be a hired man. Right. So that takes us to scene three of Act One, the younger brother coming home. So tell us what happened. Well, interestingly enough, uh, imagine this, that um, the, the father is um, – can see over a hill, and he sees coming up the hill and down the hill to the to the property, his son. And it's got to be some time since he's seen his son. It's, it's probably been a long time. And remember, the father is the head of the household. He's the pot of familiars. He is the he's he's the guy who runs everything. Everything runs through him. And so. Uh, the the father sees him, and the father runs toward him, runs toward the son. That is so unheard of. And again, Jesus is telling this parable, and 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 he's telling things to them that are countercultural. But remember, there are two people listening to the parable. There are the religious leaders, and then there are the the the, the folks who are not religious leaders at all, people who are sinners and tax collectors, as the religious leader calls them, and they are listening to Jesus in the parable as well. 
And both of them are astonished by this, that the pot of familiar uh, is running because the pot of familiar runs for nobody. Women may run, children may run, but the pot of familiar doesn't run for anybody. And in order for him to run, they're wearing long robes and stuff like that. He's got to hike up that long robe and show his knees and show his legs and all that stuff to run toward a son that took his money and disrespected him by going off with the money and squandering it. Revolutionary is what what we see here. Marvin, my question is, do you think that the father was expecting him? Because if you're going about your life, your daily life, you aren't looking to see somebody come walking up to your property. But it almost seems like he had an expectation that one day his son was coming back and he was going to be ready and he knew what he was going to do. What do you think? think Yeah, I think that's a great observation, Janice. Um, If you look at the other parables in the Luke 15 uh, panoply, you see in each of those parables that something is lost, the lost corn and the lost sheep. And when those things are found, there is a celebration. And I would also uh, concur with you that when the, when the sheep was found and also when the corn was found, both of the people who were looking for that thing start looking for them. They have an anticipation that that thing will come back. So although in the, in the parable of the lost sheep, when the sheep, when the shepherd goes out to find the lost thing, and in the parable of uh, the lost corn, where the woman goes around the house looking for it, uh, we don't see the father going to Las Vegas looking for the son. But what we, well, I think what we can uh, take an inference here to what you're saying, Janice, is that the father certainly anticipated it prayed for it, asked God for it, because there are different ways of seeking the lost. And one of those ways is praying for it and asking for it. And so I think you're absolutely right that there was some anticipation that, uh, the, for the, that the son would come back. Lord, please let my son come back. Please let my son come back. Although I can't physically go out or I'm not physically going out and seeking for it. Right, right. Well, at this point in the book, Keller indicates that commentators are saying that the father accepting the son contradicts what we traditionally think of as um, the Christian doctrine about the atonement of sin. So how does he explain it when he says, if grace is freely, prodigally given, who pays for the grace? What does mm. what does Keller say in this parable? Yeah, yeah. So, and and this is the thing that that blew my mind about the about the parable. Um, that is the doctrine. If grace grace is freely given, God gives grace freely, but there's got to be some payment for that grace. Some 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 something cost to that grace, and so. Um, what Keller is saying and, 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 and what we can see with God and with Jesus 
that God pays the price for the atonement. The person who's giving the grace, the person who's giving the forgiveness, pays the price. Uh, let me give you some examples from the parable. Um, in the parable, the father pays the price for the inheritance that he's giving up. He's, and, and that inheritance is whose money? It's the father's money. Because the father says, okay, when I die, two-thirds of the estate goes to the older one, one-third of the estate goes to the younger one. Well, he's got to preserve that two-thirds for the older brother, so that one-third comes directly from the father. He's paying for his son to go out and take that money. In the parable, he, the father pays the price for the inheritance of giving up his land. Uh, and that is not only uh, earnings now, but also earning in the future. In the parable, the father prays the price for taking back his son with no conditions attached. And what I mean by that is by taking him back with no conditions attached, in that society, these are folks who people are looking at, what in the world is the pot of familia doing in that household? He must be crazy. He let this boy go off, squander all the money, then he takes him back, gives him the fatted calf, kills the fatted calf, gives him a robe. There's something wrong here. So he's paying that reputational cost for that. And, um, and then in the parable, he gives him the best robe in the house. And the best robe in the house is, guess what, his own robe. And he gives it to his son. And then with the fatty calf, uh, the interesting thing about that is, uh, and Keller points it out in the book, that these societies didn't eat a whole lot of meat. Meat was a, meat was a rare thing. And to take the best calf that they have and slaughter it for a feast of not only the younger son who came back, but everybody else in the community is going to be there too because, oh, they have slayed the fatted calf and we're getting ready to have a good time, um, has also something that the father pays for. And then finally, in the parable, um, the father pays the price because now the lost son is back, the younger son is back, and that relationship has been restored. But in the parable, the, the relationship now with his oldest son is now estranged. So he pays the price for that. So, again, what, what uh, Keller is saying, and I, I wholeheartedly agree, that the giver of the grace pays for the atonement. And we see that also with Jesus on the cross. God gave us his son Jesus. And who paid the price for the atonement? God did by giving up his son and allowing his son to die on the cross. Absolutely. So that brings us to, we always want to personalize everything. Um, as a disciple of Christ, have you ever been prodigal with your grace? I mean, um, and do you think that that was the right thing to do? Can you think of a time when you really offered grace to someone who did not deserve it? Um. I may have not thought it was the right thing to do at the time, 
but the the more I live, I know it's the right thing to do, and um, and it involves a, a, a person that I knew uh, who um, really went through uh, the money and um, was irresponsible with, with money, uh, but came to me with a demonstrated need for about $2,000. And I gave that person $2,000. Didn't, didn't, and, and first, in fact, the person came to me and asked for the, the conversation was, can you lend me $2,000? And I knew that lending that person $2,000 was not going to be, uh, would be problematic. And the problematic piece of it was the person's not going to pay me back. And now I'm going to have this animosity between us because of the $2,000 and all this stuff. I just gave it, I just gave it to the person. And, um, and, and, and that was the start of me understanding uh, a little bit about, about God's grace, that although we don't deserve it, um, God's grace is available to us. Now, this book kind of now gives me the perspective of, yes, when we give this grace, who pays the price? We pay the price for it. But I would also argue to you that the price of giving that grace is not as huge as we think it is. And that, that yes, $2,000 may seem like a lot of money, but the Lord had blessed me and that that money was available and that the Lord continues to bless me, that I've never missed the $2,000. So uh, from a perspective of, of my lifestyle or anything, or, or, or anything else. So um, giving the grace uh, in a prodigal way is not onerous. It is not that you're paying uh, uh, a price that is going to be detrimental to you. It really is the grace that God expects for us to do. Well, I'd like to say that's a good example. Um, the last two years that I taught, I taught first grade, six- and seven-year-olds. And um, I was deeply in the ministry by then. And um, so one of the only ways that we had to punish kids was to take away their recess. And so the, um, the way we would do that is we would take the ones who, who had been bad and we would line them up in a certain spot on the playground and allow them to stand there and watch the other kids play and they could not play because it would, you know, in hopes that they would next time be more well-behaved so they could get a chance to play. Well, oftentimes I realize, hey, these are kids, and this is recess, and they need this time to run around and play. So I found myself, not all the time, but times when I felt like they really needed it, I would explain to them what grace was. It's what you don't deserve. You guys deserve that I would I should take away your recess, but I'm going to let you have it. I'm going to give it back to you. I'm going to 
give you this opportunity to run around and play, and that's grace. I'm offering you grace. And I want you to think about that, that it's costing me because you didn't behave when I asked you to. And I would, you know, ask him, are you going to behave next time? Yes, ma'am. They would say, but, you know, they were kids. But my hope is that at some point in their lives, they remember that they were given grace. And I would say, go play, and they would run. And, and I think about that now, it, and I think, I don't know if it was the right thing to do, but it it made me feel good about being able to offer them something they didn't deserve. And I just, you know, I feel like that's how God feels towards us. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. 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 So now in the book, we have finished with, for now, the younger brother, and we, that completes, Act 1, now we're into Act 2, Scene 1, where the older brother becomes the lost brother. So um, the father has accepted the younger brother back. He's um, had them kill the fatted calf. There's a feast going on. What is the reaction of the older brother when he learns that the younger brother has returned home and the father has planned a feast. He's pissed. He's upset. <laughs> He's mad. He's furious. He's whatever adjective you want to acclaim to someone not being happy. And, and, and he's more than not being happy. Uh, he he's decides that I am going to get back to my father. I'm going to disgrace him. Because he's thinking, you know what, you've disgraced me. And, and, and you've disgraced me uh, because you have, um, uh, you have killed the fatted calf. And, and we talked about the significance uh, of, of, of having the fatted calf and killing the fatted calf earlier. Um, and then you've also disgraced me because I have done Everything you told me to do, I stayed here. I tended the land. I got up at 4 o'clock in the morning to slop the hogs or tend to the sheep or mend the fences or whatever needed to be done. I did everything you wanted me to do. And this boy comes back and you do that for him. And you didn't even, you, you did nothing for me all this time. Nothing. So I am not coming to this feast. Not coming, not coming, not coming, not coming. I got a mind to do what he did and ask for my money right now too. So he's upset. Okay, so the older brother is so upset and feels like the younger brother is getting something he doesn't deserve and he refuses to attend the feast. But then the father leaves the feast to speak to the older brother. What's the significance of that? Well, once again, the father is the pot of familiar. The father is the guy in charge. The father is 
the, the father doesn't run after people. The father doesn't, uh, because the sons are in a, uh, an inferior position. And so the father does none of these things. But the significance is that the father loved this son, and, and consider now the older son as being the lost son. The father loved the, the older son, who's now the lost son, so much that he is now seeking him. He is looking for him. And again, if you remember the other parables that are in the Luke 15 panoply that we're looking at, uh, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost corn, the person who has lost the thing is, goes out to look for them. Now we see the father actually going out looking for the lost son, who's now the older brother. And again, that was something that 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 was that blew my mind when I when I when I started studying this book, and and particularly studying it in context with the other parables in Luke 15, which we are uh, considering and talking about during this month of October at, uh, at our church. Okay. Um, so when the, the father comes out and he's speaking to the older brother, what's the older brother's attitude towards the father and how does he address him? Well, again, this is the this is the father. This is the part of familiar. This is the guy, and and so when you're speaking to him, uh, you speak to him in a in a formal way. You you address him uh, formally and uh, with with respect. You know how how they say put some respect on it, and um, he doesn't do that. In fact, he says, now look, now look, when he's going through his diatribe about all the things he's done and, and the fact that you, Father, have done nothing for me. So uh, he has dropped his whole piece of respect for the Father, and, uh, and it shows and he's doing nothing but giving his list of grievances. Yes, and he he refers to his brother as that son of yours. <laughs> he doesn't yeah. he doesn't consider him, you know, a brother. And so. Um, and he and and, and and Janice at that moment he doesn't consider him a father either. He says that son of yours. Right. So. In what way do you find that the older brother and the younger brother are alike? What is it that they both have in common? Well, what they both have in common, and Keller says this, and again, this is another revelation for me, is that they don't really care about the father, but they care about the father's money. They care about the things that the father can give them. Because at the end of the day, yes, the older son, it was, excuse me, the younger son, it was really obvious. Give me my money. Bye. With the older son, the reason he's so ups, he, he's upset 
is that he believes because he's done everything you've asked me to do, I've been faithful, I've been all of these things, that, Father, you owe me. You owe me. You owe me all the inheritance. You owe me all of these things because I am faithful to you and I'm doing all this stuff. But in reality, but in reality, the Father says, you know, all this stuff is yours anyway. You didn't have to be faithful for it because look at the, look at the younger son. He wasn't faithful for it, and what? He got it. So it's not about doing all of these things. It's not transactional. It is because the Father loves you and because the Father is your, is, is your father, you're his offspring, I'm giving you this grace. I'm prodigal. I'm giving it away. I'm being reckless with it, so reckless with it that I'm just going to give it to you and you do what you do with it. But I'm doing it because I love you and you're mine. Right. So Keller makes a statement at the end of uh, this chapter that Jesus is redefining sin and what it means to be lost. And so I think in the next chapter, which is entitled Redefining Sin, that's where we get into how it is that both of them, the younger brother and the older brother, are lost. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll put a pin in that and make that a commercial for our next chapter when we talk about that. So hopefully... Folks will listen to the next chapter, but you're absolutely right on that one. Okay. Well, one final question, though, about this chapter is from this chapter, what new things have you learned about Jesus and your faith? Uh, I've I've tried to tick some of them off during our conversation, Janice, but I think one of the things I've learned is that the grace that's giving, the forgiveness that is giving, the one who is giving it pays for it, which is not a bad thing, but the one who's giving that grace is paying for that grace, is paying for the atonement. Not the one who receives the grace is paying for it. They just receive the grace. They just receive the forgiveness. Um, the, the, the second thing I learned here was, um, and I've and, and been looking at this parable for, for years, is the fact that both sons wanted the same thing. They just wanted the money. And then the third thing is that for the father, and again, if we think of the father as, as uh, our heavenly father, uh, he's prodigal with his grace. He's prodigal with his love. He, they, there's nothing you have to do to earn God's love. There's nothing you have to do to earn God's grace. He just gives it to you. And as a prelude to what we're going to be talking about in the next chapter, those of us who believe that doing all of these things nets us God's love and grace, then we are as sinful 
as the person who obviously goes out like the younger son and squanders all the money and all those sorts of things. And Jesus is turning that on his head. Because, again, remember the, the people who are sitting here listening to the parable. It is the religious leaders, and I put that in air quotes, and then also the, uh, the, 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 the tax collectors, the sinners, the known sinners. And what Jesus is doing is, yeah, we know you guys are sinners, but you religious leaders, you're sinners too. I think for me, <clears throat> this parable reminds me of the parable of the generous master in uh, Matthew chapter 20, where the, the um, landowner has a vineyard, and he hires people to go out and work for an hour, and then some work, then he goes out the next hour, and he keeps hiring people. And then at the end of the day, those that worked all day received the same amount of pay as the ones who only worked an hour, and they were incensed about it. They were upset because they thought that they deserved more because they worked all day. But his thing was, well, you... I gave you what we agreed that you would make. This was the agreement. You can't be mad at me because I'm generous with what is mine. And so that's kind of um, us begrudging, you know, the, the, the older brother begrudging the younger brother because the father was generous to him. And that's the way it is that we need to keep focus on Christ for ourselves and what he's doing for us rather than looking around. Because, yeah. um, you know, if the, if it all belongs to God. It's not ours. We can't dictate what he does with what is his. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I um, agree. And I guess another way of looking at it, Janice, is salvation has no tears. And what I mean by that is, um, okay, I have been saved for 30 years, and then this person just saved a half a minute ago. Right. Like Who's the sinner on the cross. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whose salvation is better? And God is saying, yeah. what of your salvation is salvation. Yeah. And so, in fact, God... I don't mean to think for God, but in fact, there may be this concern about what are you doing with your salvation? If you're just sitting around condemning people who are not saved, then you're not saved either. And that's what he's also kind of saying to these, these uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, and other religious leaders who are listening to him talk. Right. So I like Chapter 2, but I'm excited about Chapter 3 because for me, Chapter 3 really answers a lot of things that um, we get wrong in the Christian faith. And so um, I'm excited about the next time we get together and we get to talk about Chapter 3. But um, thank you for this conversation about... um, the Lost Brothers, and um, 
So I think we're ready for you to pray us out. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to look at your word in a new and fresh light. Father, we uh, just give you honor, grace, and glory. We hope that those who've been listening to this and who are studying with us with this Bible study will be enhanced and enriched and have a deeper and better relationship with you. Lord, we love you. We give you honor and grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Let us all say amen. Amen. All right, guys, take care. And so until the up, next time we upload for Chapter 3, blessings, peace, and love.